Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 3 through 8 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this text on page 983. I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for a wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for the shining sun. Lord, thank you for all of those who who were able to come and gather for worship. Pray for those who are watching uh, via the live stream this morning that you would also bless them and and might they be enriched through their uh, time spent in your word. Pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts ready to receive the truths found in this text. We pray that you would be glorified in this time. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So this is our second week in the book of Colossians. Last week, I simply offered you a basic overview of the book. We saw that Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, and it was written in response to their spiritual crisis. And here's what was going on. Uh, The church of Colossae was a, a young, fledgling church, And they were situated in the midst of a very pluralistic environment. And there were advocates of alternative systems of thought coming to the members of this church and saying things like this to them. They were saying, listen, if you guys want to embrace the gospel of Christ, if you want to call yourselves Christians, all of that is is fine. That's great. But if you really want to be sure that you have a right relationship with God, then you need to adopt our systems as well. And they had philosophies and traditions. They had um, dietary practices. They had new worship practices. And they were impressing upon the Church of Colossae their need to supplement the gospel of Christ with these additional things. And so the Church of Corinth was experiencing something of a, a crisis of faith. They didn't know what, what to do with this. Okay, was their faith deficient? Did they not yet have a, a right relationship with God? And things were being made all the worse by the fact that the advocates of these competing systems were also saying, if you guys don't adopt our systems, then we're going to look down on you as either ignorant or foolish. And who wants to have that kind of a reputation? So they were really struggling. This book was written then by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Colossae to strengthen their faith. The book was written to strengthen our faith as well. Because as I noted last time, our situation is very similar to that of the church in Colossae. We too find ourselves in a highly pluralistic environment And there are advocates of other systems of thought in this environment who put pressure on the church of Christ. And they say to Christians, look, if you want to embrace the gospel, you want to call yourselves Christians, that's fine, but it's also not enough. You need to adopt our additional philosophies and lifestyle practices and all of these other things. And this can cause uh, a crisis of faith for us just as it did for the church of Colossae. Christians can wonder whether or not they have really uh, embraced all that they need to embrace when they came to accept the gospel. 
They, they wonder, is my relationship with God really what it's supposed to be? Or do I need to supplement my faith or reinterpret my faith in line with these other philosophies in order to have a, a system that is fully pleasing to God? Not only that, but we desire to have the, the respect of the people around us and we don't want reputations for ignorance or for foolishness. And so we, we wonder how much we should accommodate the systems around us. So we have the same problem that the Church of Colossae faced. Well, what we're doing in this series is looking at the lessons the Apostle Paul gives to the Church of Colossae, and then we're applying those lessons to ourselves because our situations are virtually the same. And we begin here in verses 3 through 8 today. This is the opening of the main body of the book of Colossians. And here Paul takes the church's crisis of faith head on. He says, okay, guys, so you are wondering whether your relationship to God is right, whether everything is well between you and God. Let's talk about that right at the start. And so he says this, verse 3. We always thank God. He's talking about himself and Timothy, his associate. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, I, I love this introduction because with the very first stroke of his pen, the Apostle Paul has removed all of the anxieties of this church. Look, this church was being bombarded by rival systems of thought, told they could not be confident in their relationship with God until they embraced these things. Well, Paul comes right to them and says, let me give it to you with the authority of an apostle. All is well with you. Everything is okay. Sins forgiven. New life is yours. You are just where you need to be. And he gives all thanks to God for their spiritual state. And that's because this was God's doing. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you are saved. Through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You see, salvation is God's work in us, and by His grace, God gives to us all that we need for life and godliness. Everything necessary for us to be confident in a right standing with God has been given to us by God's grace in the gospel of Christ. And friends, it is good for us to thank God for his gracious work in our lives as we see Paul giving thanks here. It's good for us to thank God for his gifts, chief among them the gift of new spiritual life in Christ. It's also good for us to thank God for the life that he gives to others. So thank God for the gifts given to us. Thank God for the gifts he gives to others. Anytime God puts his, his grace and mercy and power on display in this world, we should give all glory to him for it. It's also good for us to encourage one another when we are in spiritual crisis. 
Here, Paul just gives a simple word of encouragement, and it is all that this church needed at the start to know that things were okay between them and God. Friends, what a, what a powerful thing encouragement can be in a believer's spiritual life. So were these Christians in a spiritual crisis? Yes, they didn't know what to do with the advocates of these other philosophies. They didn't know what it meant for their relationship to God. But Paul, speaking as an apostle of Christ, says to them, I thank God for you, meaning everything is as it should be. But friends, now we might ask the question, how could Paul be so sure of their relationship to God? How could he know that they were okay? Well, this takes us to verses 4 through 5a. We see here that Paul was confident in their spiritual life because... Despite their current intellectual struggles, their lives were defined by three features that, is, that are only true of people who have been born again. And Paul now identifies those three features for their encouragement. The first one that he notes is in verse 4. It is their faith. So he says, we always thank God for you. Since, verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ. Now, what is faith? According to the Bible, true saving faith is the joyful commitment of the whole person to all that God has said and all that God would be for us through Christ. True faith is having an intellectual agreement with all of the truths that God has revealed, along with a will that is moved to believe, to trust in those truths. Faith is a glad-hearted turning away from one's idols with the desire to serve the living and true God. That's faith. And as the Apostle Paul looked at the church of Colossae, he could see that they had this real faith within them. Despite their present intellectual challenges, everything about them was screaming that Christ had become their greatest treasure, that they really did believe his words. They were trusting his words. In fact, Paul identifies Christ as the direct object of their faith. You'll also notice that Paul Paul describes their faith as as a vital, living principle within them. He doesn't say, I give thanks to God because, say, three years ago, you professed faith in Christ. No, he says, I thank God because right now, as I write to you, you have faith in Christ. This was a defining feature of their lives. And as Paul looked at this faith, he knew that these believers were born again because that kind of faith is only true of the redeemed. That was the first mark that Paul noticed. But then he saw a second mark in them. That was love. Look again at verse 4. He says, We heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. That means We heard of your love for the church of Christ. So faith in Christ and then love for Christ's church. 1 John chapter 2 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life if we love the brothers. 1 John chapter 4 says, If we love one another, then God abides in us 
and His love is perfected in us. And here is how this works, my friends. When we come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into spiritual union with Christ. A bond is forged, linking our spirit to His. Christ gives us His own Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way. And one of the ministries of Christ's Spirit to ours is that He begins to communicate to us the virtues of His person. One of those virtues is love. Christ infuses a new love into His people. He gives them a love for himself as their savior, but also a love for his church, that host of people that he has redeemed. He works within us a desire to give of ourselves for his church, our time, our talents, our treasures, because we love them now. Love for the church is a distinguishing mark of those who have been born again. And so Paul, as he looks at this church, he can say to them, I know, even if you guys have doubts, I know that you are born again, that all is well with you and God, because I see that faith is a living principle in your life, and it's directed toward Christ. And I see that that Christ has done his spiritual work in you now. And you have a love for him and a love that flows out to the church. I see that in you. You must be the real deal because nobody else would have that. But then there's a third mark that Paul identifies. And that is hope. Look at verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This means that the the Colossian Christians had a firm understanding of all the promises that they had received from Christ. And they were holding on to those promises. See, friends, in the Christian life, there are some things that we receive immediately upon uh, receiving Christ in faith. But then there are other things that we do not receive until later on. Things that we receive already include forgiveness of sins, declaration of righteousness in God's sight, the gift of His Holy Spirit, all the resources we need for life and godliness in this world. But you know, still to come, there is a crown and a kingdom and a resurrected body and an inheritance with all the saints where we will rule and reign with Christ. All these are yet to come. And these Colossian Christians had embraced Christ in faith. They had a love for Christ and for His church, and they were clinging to these promises. In fact, this passage says that it was, it was their hope in these promises that was the fuel driving their faith and love. It says you have faith and you have love, and it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, the, they had it at the forefront of their minds this knowledge of the kingdom to come in all that would be theirs in the kingdom. And that meant everything to these Christians. And they were willing to persevere no matter what challenges they faced in this life because they were holding out the hope of that coming inheritance. 
They could keep on believing no matter what. They could keep on loving their church because they knew that that would be theirs if they would only persevere. You see, these Colossian believers had the three chief Christian virtues. They had faith, and they had love, and they had hope. Things only true of those who have been born again. And Paul could see that in their lives, and he could know, based on that, that they were right with God. Or if I could put it another way, Paul knew that these Colossian Christians were right with God because their lives were rooted in the gospel. Their lives were rooted in the gospel. This takes us to verses 5b through 8. Before we get to those verses, what is the gospel exactly? Well, friends, the gospel is a message as large as the Bible itself. But it can be summarized in just a few words. The gospel is the message that God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to himself, despite the fact that we are guilty of sin. And God's plan for our redemption centers in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the eternal son of God, whom God sent into this world, giving him a full human nature to complement his divine nature, so that in Christ we had one person who is both divine and human. And God sent him into the world for our sakes. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, lived among us on this earth. And he lived a life of perfect righteousness, something that none of us were capable of doing. This is what qualified Christ to be a substitute for sinners, his perfect life. At the end of his earthly ministry, after all had been said and all had been done, Christ voluntarily went to the cross where he accepted God's righteous judgments against our sins on his shoulders. He had no sin to pay for. He was sinless. But we do have sins. And Christ voluntarily shouldered the burden of our sins, allowed God to to judge him in our place. On the cross, Christ literally suffered death and hell for all of us. And he died on that cross. But then on the third day, he rose from the grave, declaring his victory over death and hell. And then he ascended to the right hand of his Father. And one day, he is going to return to this earth where he will judge the living and the dead and establish that kingdom promised long ago. My friends, this is the gospel message And when you hear that message and you respond to it with faith in Christ and love for Christ and for all of the people he has redeemed and with a hope in the promises that he has made for you, when you respond to the gospel in that way, you can have assurance that you are born again. You have eternal life and you will be with God forever and ever. See, God has left nothing out of his gospel. Nothing that you need to know, nothing that you need to do. It's all there for you. You just take the message, receive it in repentant faith, and eternal life is yours. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. It is perfect as it stands. Friends, when we embrace the gospel of Christ... 
we can know we have eternal life with God because we have just embraced the word of truth. The word of truth. This is what Paul calls the gospel down in verse 5. Do you see that? He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, which is the gospel. He calls it the word of truth because it teaches us the truth about God. Through the gospel, we learn about the holiness of God as well as His love. We learn about His ferocity as well as His forgiving spirit. We learn all that there is to to know about God for saving faith. The gospel also tells us the truth about ourselves. It teaches us about our dignity as image bearers of God, but also our plight as those guilty of sin. It tells us about our need to be redeemed from the curse of sin and death. The gospel tells us the truth about how reconciliation with God is secured, namely through repentance and faith in Christ, God's provision for us, and in nothing else. The gospel is the word of truth. When you take hold of the gospel, you've taken hold of something else as well. You've taken hold of the power of God. The gospel is the truth of God, and it is the power of God. Just look what Paul says in verses 6 through 8. He writes, This gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also did among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul goes on this wonderful digression about the power of the gospel. It's the word of truth and it's the word of power. He says that gospel came to you, Colossians. It came to you directly from Epaphras, who got it from me, who got it from the risen Christ himself, faithfully transmitted down to you. And he says, it reached you, and the second you received it, it changed your life for the better. Immediately, faith, hope, and love began to stir up inside of you. You were drawn together as a local church. And he says, and it isn't just you that the gospel has come to, but the gospel has gone through the whole world. Every kindred, tongue, people, and nation have heard the gospel preached to them. And people from every group have also embraced it. And when they embraced it, they too found the power of God in it. It awakened in them faith and love, and hope. Everywhere the gospel goes, every life that receives it, it does a supernatural work in that life. Romans 1.16 says this, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Once embraced, it changes our desires, it conquers our sins, it vivifies our spirits, it transforms our character. Ours and everyone else's who receive this message. That's the power of the gospel. Now, what a contrast the gospel of Christ was to the ideas being peddled to this church in Colossae by outsiders. Remember, you had these these people advocating their philosophies and traditions and advocating new worship practices and new lifestyle patterns, saying to, to this little church, you're not right with God till you've taken on all of this. You've got to supplement your faith with this. 
Well, what were those ideas being peddled to them? My friends, despite the aura of authority surrounding the advocates of those views, in truth, they were nothing more than novel uh, ideas embraced by a small group of people in one remote part of the world with no truth or power in them at all. These things were nothing compared to the gospel. They had nothing to add to what the Colossian church had already received. In fact, even to suggest that any of those ideas needed to be added to the gospel would be an affront to Christ, to suggest that he had not given us all that we need for salvation and life. Paul says, don't be tempted by those shallow and vain philosophies. You have all that you need in Christ. My friends, why would we ever allow ourselves to be, in, to be attempt, uh, tempted to reinterpret the gospel we've embraced or to supplement it with worldly philosophies or to add to it the ideas of mere men when we have all that we need already? We live in a pluralistic culture in which there is a kaleidoscope of competing interest groups all vying for the supremacy, some of them very persuasive, some of them very militant, some of them with an aura of authority about them. They pressure the churches of Christ to conform their beliefs to these new systems of thought. I mentioned four in particular that the church in America is particularly, particularly wrestling with today. These are cultural Marxism, the sexual revolution, scientism, not to be confused with science, but scientism, and critical theory and intersectionality. People with an aura of authority coming to the Church of Christ, saying that you will be thought ignorant or foolish by us unless you add to your faith these thoughts. My friends, what, what are these thoughts? There are thoughts of very recent origin, considered on a global and historical scale. Thoughts of a very recent origin, peddled by a very small group of people, the only ones ever to embrace these ideas are modern Western leftists, not by anyone else in the world and not by anyone else in human history. They're based on presuppositions far removed from biblical Christianity. And besides all of that, consider the outcome of these ideas. Everywhere that they have gone and taken hold, there has been death, destruction, division, and resentments left in their wake. Why on earth would we be tempted to modify the content of the gospel of Christ with any of that, as if that has something to, to contribute to the gospel of Christ? It has nothing we already possess the word of truth, a message from the God of heaven as old as time itself, first spoken in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. It's a message that has been received with joy by every tribe, tongue, people, and nation the world over since time began. And though the basics of the gospel are simple enough for a child to understand, it's also robust enough to take on all of its intellectual rivals. 
The gospel of Christ does not stand under the philosophies of this world subject to their critiques. No, the gospel rises above the thoughts of this world and critiques them, finds them wanting. And everywhere the gospel is received, the fruits of it are faith and love and hope and unity and joy and peace. My friend, if you've not yet embraced the gospel of Christ as as presented here, this is what you need. You don't need anything else for salvation or for life or for wisdom. This is what you need. Will you not see Christ as God's provision for you, the only all-sufficient answer to your plight? Will you not trust in Christ in saving faith, turning from your idols, trusting the living God? Will you not do that? You can do it right from your seat this morning, offering a simple prayer to God. God, I, I turn away from all that I used to dedicate my life to. I now dedicate myself to you through Christ. I trust in him, his life, death, and resurrection. Will you not do that? Or if you're not ready in this moment, will you not seek me out after the service? And we can set an appointment, an appointment for later in the week. And we can have a conversation about these things. And we can wrestle through those remaining doubts. But please, get this settled in your mind. The gospel is what you need most. And Christian friends, this gospel message is all that you need for life and godliness. Don't try to pacify the peoples around you by, by reinterpreting or adding to or taking away from the gospel that you have received. Instead, embrace it with all of your heart, no matter what those around you may think. Ignorant, foolish, who cares? You have spiritual life with Christ through this message. It's the word of truth. It's the message of power. My friends, let us not be tempted by the vain philosophies of this world. Let us embrace the gospel of Christ instead. Let us remain rooted to the gospel of Christ all life long, seeing it as the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. Lord, it speaks to us today. We are in the the same uh, circumstances that the Church of Colossae found itself in. And we wrestle with uh, voices challenging us to adapt the message of the gospel to the philosophies of the age. Lord, help us to see the folly of that, to trust instead in your Son and in the message that tells us about your Son. Help us, Lord, to persevere in our faith and love and hope right through to the end that we might obtain the promises you have given to all who do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.